Tonight's event is part of a partnership with the Bolandist Society. For more than four centuries, the Bolandists have worked earnestly to find and preserve the stories of our saints. If not for their labor-intensive search through archives and libraries the world over, thousands of documents about the saints and their time would have been lost. Once saved from destruction and oblivion, they have been evaluated according to the most rigorous historical critical criteria. Now the Bolandists are working to turn their facilities into a 21st century library by launching new research programs, digitizing their collections, and creating the databases necessary for their work. This will help to preserve the testimony of their saints and their example and their inspiration. Today's event continues our series on the saints that is born out of this partnership with the Bolandists. And to help us remember two saints who helped inspire religious orders in an ongoing movement of lay charity is Professor Bronwyn McShay. Bronwyn McShay is a visiting pro assistant professor in history with the Augustine Institute Graduate School in Denver and a writer in residence at the Institute on Religion and Public Life in New York City. She has taught at Columbia University and the University of Nebraska Omaha and has held research positions at Princeton University and Leibniz Institute for Europeisch Geschichte. She holds a PhD in history from Yale University and an MTS from Harvard Divinity School. Her first book, Apostles of Empire, The Jesuits of New France, won a Catholic Press Association Book Award. And her second book, tentatively titled Peer of Princes, Marie de Vangereau, Cardinal Richelieu's Forgotten Protégé, is under contract with Pegasus Books. Bronwyn, I invite you at this time to unmute yourself and to turn on your screen. Thank you very much, uh, Michael. Um, I'm very delighted to be part of this series on the saints offered by the Lumen Christi Institute and the Bollandist Society. And I'm very pleased to get to speak to this audience uh, about not one, but two major saints of the time and place that I spend uh, the most at, on as an historian, France in the 17th century. And if you'll forgive me, I have a feeling uh, in light of recent events, some of you out there may be tuning in this evening, uh, welcoming the chance to escape the 21st century for the 17th for a little bit of time. Um, now, in terms of the post-Reformation renewal of the church, the Catholic church, the 17th century in France was something of a golden age. And the number of great, and in some cases, canonized Catholic leaders of that time and place is impressive and includes also some famous fruitful spiritual relationships between men and women. Now, perhaps the most famous of these pairs is St. Francis de Sales and Jean de Chantal, who founded together the Women's Order of the Visitation. But there was also St. Margaret Mary Alacoque and her Jesuit confessor, St. Claude de la Colombière, who promoted devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And there was Pierre Berroul, who founded the French Oratory, and his friend, Bob Acari, uh, with whom he helped establish Teresa of Avila's Discalced Carmelites in France. Okay. Now, the saintly pair that I'm focusing on this evening, um, I suspect uh, with regard to them that most, if not all of you, are more familiar with the man, Vincent de Paul, than the woman, Louise de Marillac. Now, indeed, uh, a number of well-educated, well-informed Catholics, oops, excuse me, that I've asked about um, these saints, they've admitted that they know of Vincent, who's beloved by the name Apostle of charity, his nickname, but uh, many have never actually even heard of Louise. 
And this is in spite of the fact that the two together established the Daughters of Charity, one of the most innovative and successful women's congregations in the church's history, devoted to social charity. And they did so by means of a genuine partnership and as the fruit of a strong spiritual friendship. Now, there are a number of reasons that Vincent is so much better remembered than Louise, some related to the very different trajectories of their canonizations, um, the, the causes for their canonizations. So Vincent was canonized uh, relatively quickly in 1737, while Louise was not raised to the full honors of the altar until 1934, even though they both died in 1660, and even though they were both connected to the same powerful French elites who regarded both as important and saintly. Now I'll come back to that later in the lecture. Uh, we'll explore that a little bit. Uh, and I'll also refer to some resources in the Bollandist Society's collection in Belgium that uh, can help illustrate what happened there. Now, first though, I just wanna tell you more about who Vincent was and who Louise uh, was, and also how they worked together for God, for the poor and the sick and the marginalized. So let's start with Vincent. Um, he was 10 years older than Louise, so we'll begin with him. And he's also more well-known. Um, now, Vincent de Paul was born into a peasant family in a place called uh, Puy in, the, in southwestern France. And at the time of his birth, much of France, including the region where he and his peasant family were from, were caught up in terrible sectarian conflict between French Catholics and French Protestants. Now these French wars of religion truly devastated many communities economically and in other ways. Now, despite Vincent's obscure origins, he was able to receive an excellent traditionally scholastic education at the University of Toulouse. And he also was able to um, uh, study for the priesthood and pursue a clerical career. And indeed, for several years after his ordination to the priesthood, he was rather uh, much more focused on advancing his career in the church than he was about the deeper discernment of God's will in his life, according to his own account uh, of, his, of his life. But then he was influenced by the likes of Francis de Sales and Pierre de Berroul, among others, and he underwent a kind of conversion that deepened his understanding of his priesthood. And he also became uh, especially concerned about the poverty, material, moral, and spiritual of rural communities in France, like the one he came from, including in the sense that many uh, poor French people were actually turning to Protestant preachers for hope. Now, de Paul, through Berroul and others, including his first major patrons, uh, a noble couple named Philippe and Françoise de Gandhi, was able to connect with various church and state officials, including Cardinal Richelieu, the rising minister of state to Louis XIII. That's why I have Cardinal Richelieu's portrait up there for you to see. Um, and Richelieu would eventually veritably rule France himself for a time as prime minister to King Louis. Now these connections to powerful people, along with Vincent's own leadership capabilities, and his straightforward and warm style as a preacher, as a confessor, um, and just administering to people, uh, facilitated his achieving an idea that he developed. He wanted to establish a new society of clergymen who helped each other to be better priests and who also were dedicated in a special way to serving the poor and the sick of France, especially in the countryside in, in rural places that were neglected. There were lots of ministries in the cities that were growing and, and he felt that the rural areas of France were being neglected by 
um, religious and, and the church in general. Now by 1625, he had established, uh, sort of bringing this idea to life, the Congregation of the Mission, known as the Lazarists, because they became headquartered at the old Priory of Saint-Lazare in Paris. So they're known in France uh, as, as uh, les Lazaristes. Now with the assistance of Richelieu, various French bishops, and also Richelieu's niece, the Duchess of Aguillon, whose portrait I also have up there, and whose biography I'm writing, actually. Um, so with the assistance of all these people uh, and other lay and clerical patrons, the Lazarists soon grew into a very large, complex organization of priests and brothers. And they had houses, seminaries, missions to the poor, the sick, prisoners, and others throughout France. Now, DePaul prioritized the formation of the clergymen uh, in this congregation, the Lazarists, uh, partly in active mission settings. So he, he didn't like his seminarians to simply be in the classroom. He wanted them to train uh, uh, in ministry while they were still students. And he insisted that his priests um, sort of not employ the grandiose and often interminably long style of sermonizing that was heard in elite urban parishes at the time. And that his priests also developed, a, he wanted them to develop a simple evangelical preaching style that spoke directly to the heart of ordinary people. And by such means, the Lazarists with their emphasis on helping the poor on corporal works of mercy were able to have a profound effect on many rural communities in France, including strengthening some of them against the inroads of Protestantism. Now, eventually, in DePaul's own lifetime, the Lazarists also extended into other parts of Europe, uh, as well as into North Africa and even Madagascar. And the Duchess uh, d'Aguillon has had a, a, a good deal to do with that, uh, which is something I'll get into in my book. Now, DePaul was the superior of the Lazarists until his death in 1660. So, so he uh, became a superior of a rather large congregation of priests and, and lay brothers uh, that was internationalizing in his lifetime. Now with Madame de Gandhi and other noble women, including Richelieu's niece, uh, de Paul also worked with a growing group of aristocratic French women to form confraternities of charity based in Paris and other cities primarily, but devoted to where possible to assisting the rural poor. Now these women became organized as the ladies of charity or les dames de charité in French. And uh, these were uh, lay women. They served uh, some of them as the president in offices such as president, treasurer. So, so they were governed by themselves. Um, and Vincent was their, their spiritual advisor. Now, one of the aristocratic women who began volunteering with the ladies of charity was named Louise de Marillac. And she and Vincent eventually together determined that the ladies were limited in terms of the impact that they could have, especially in, the, in rural communities. And so they ended up establishing by 1633, an organization of women, generally of more humble social origins than the ladies, called the Daughters of Charity. And the daughters were eventually recognized by church authorities, but not as a religious order for reasons that I will explain. Uh, and it was, uh, the daughters were devoted both to prayer and contemplation and to a very active service in the world, service to the poor, the sick, the marginalized. Now I'll come back to Louise and the daughters in a moment, but I, I just wanna say a few more things about, uh, about Vincent. Now Vincent took on other leadership roles. 
in addition to being superior of the, and founder of the Lazarus and, and helping found the dollars. Um, so Cardinal Richelieu, for example, appointed him to various state-sponsored chaplaincies and other offices, enabling him to influence the French church at a higher institutional level. And he also became an opponent of the Jansenist movement, which was a movement uh, rather pessimistic about human free will, and one that also interestingly wished to subordinate religious orders to bishops authority. It's, it's kind of a, a lesser known aspect of the Jansenist movement as it developed historically. Now he was also involved with a secretive elite Catholic society called the Compagnie du Saint Sacrament or the this Company of the Holy Sacrament led by a group of reform minded laypersons and clergymen who were committed to the moral and spiritual renewal of France and the church. And so he was an influential figure in this kind of secret society that existed in France um, devoted to uh, reform uh, of the church. Now I wanna to mention too um, briefly, um, the most recent scholarly biography of St. Vincent um, by a professor uh, uh, named Alison Forrestal. And its title is Vincent de Paul, The Lazarus Mission and French Catholic Reform. Now it's very, very scholarly, this work. It's, it's, it's researched uh, uh, truly uh, in excellent ways. Um, so it's not the most popularly accessible book, uh, but it is excellent uh, for the way it overcomes various tendencies in older works that in some ways distort aspects of de Paul's personality, his various endeavors, and also his relationships with others, including Louise de Marillac. And among other things, Forrestal's book um, overcomes a problem in older works, which generally present Marillac and other collaborators in, as Forrestal puts it, positions of subordination to his far-sighted and inspired leadership as beneficiaries of his direction and as patrons enthralled to his virtue, despite some of the author's efforts to ascribe parody to Louise de Marillac in the foundation of the Daughters of Charity. Now, uh, she's not questioning that he, he was far-sighted and inspired or um, was a great spiritual director, but a lot of the older histories tend to kind of make this the main active force that's driving everything. Um, and so everyone else in his orbit always seems to be very subordinate. Um, and that's uh, just really not how real life tends to work. And that's not how it worked in Vincent's life. Um, now that said, let me zoom in on Louisa's story. And I, I, I will tell you a bit more about her than Vincent because I, I do think she's the less familiar of these two saints uh, to most people in our audience. Now Louise uh, was born in the summer of 1591, again, 10 years after uh, Vincent in a place called Le Meux, north of Paris. And her social origins were quite different from Vincent's. He was a peasant. She was actually of noble uh, lineage, but with an asterisk. So she was born into a family of privileged aristocrats with influence at the French royal court, but she was also an illegitimate child. Her father was a nobleman named Louis de Marillac, and her mother's identity is still unknown to this day, even to those who've researched it uh, very closely. Now, Louise's father was unable to persuade his wife to accept his illegitimate daughter into their family. So Louise, when she was quite young, was sent to a Dominican convent uh, to be raised there. And this was in a town called Poissy. Um, 
Also, her father died in 1604 when she was only 13, uh, when she was living with the nuns. So at this time, she was put under the legal guardianship of her uncle, Michel de Marillac, who eventually became a leading royal counselor. And there's a portrait of him because he was a rather prominent uh, nobleman in French history at the time, uh, certainly by the early 1630s. Um, now, Louise, when she was with the Dominicans at Poissy, she received an unusually excellent education, especially for a girl at that time. Um, girls, even aristocratic girls, were not generally educated at a high level. She, but she received an excellent education um, from the nuns. And she also developed a serious prayer life, a strong devotion to the Eucharist and to the liturgy, and a desire to become a nun herself once she came of age. And when she was 15, she asked to join in with a new group of nuns in Paris, whom her uncle, uh, Michel de Marillac, was patronizing, the Daughters of the Passion, who were affiliated with the Capuchin Friars. But for reasons also not quite known to historians to this day, she was turned down and the, um, the friar reviewing her application said in a kind of vague way, God has other plans for you. Now, Louise, after this, uh, she was really disappointed by this. She resigned herself to a different path, that of marriage and motherhood. And eventually, she married a high-ranking royal secretary named Antoine Le Gras, uh, that's spelled L-E, capital G-R-A-S, Le Gras, a nobleman about 14 years her senior. They had a son named Michel, after her uncle, uh, in 1613, when Louise was 22. Now, about 10 years later, in 1623, Louise's husband had become quite ill. And although uh, he would hang on for another two years, Louise already by 1623 sensed that he did not have much time left. And this actually sent her into kind of a spiral of worry <clears throat> and scrupulosity about a desire that she'd been trying to suppress for a long time. So throughout her marriage, she, she still had this desire to become a nun and a cloistered nun at that, like, like the nuns that she had known uh, when she was young. Um, and her longing for the religious life became stronger as her husband's health declined, and she felt very guilty about this. Now, a key moment came for her in this regard on Pentecost Sunday in 1623. So that day, she was praying uh, in a church, and she experienced uh, in her prayer a rather profound consolation by which she felt assured by God that she would indeed be able to devote herself in a radical way to him at some point um, uh, in the future. And she described this experience in terms of a great light. And some words she wrote about that experience are up on the slide here. And she actually wrote them down on a piece of paper that she kept close to her person the rest of her life. That's one reason why the word survived. And so these, this is Louise describing um, this. Quote, on the Feast of Pentecost, while I was praying in the church, my mind was completely freed of all doubt. I was advised that I should remain with my husband and that the time would come when I would be in the position to make vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and that I would be in a small community where others would do the same. I felt that it was God who was teaching me these things and that believing there is a God, I should not doubt the rest. Now, around the time that Louise's husband died uh, in 1625, or possibly a few months before that, uh, Louise's path crossed with Father Vincent de Paul's. 
Neither had any idea at the time how interwoven their lives would become. And interestingly, Louise was not that much drawn to Father Vincent at first as a possible spiritual director. She had another spiritual director. She, she was um, speaking to other uh, clergy at the time about her interests uh, in, in becoming a nun and all that. Um, she was determined to vote to, to devote the rest of her life to God. And sort of according to her, her sort of natural tendency, she very much wanted to control the ways in which she would do this. And Father Vincent sensed in a way that a previous spiritual director couldn't convey effectively to her, that she was caught up in a bit too much self-questioning, self-analysis, and self-contempt. That she, she the critical voice was, was kind of always with her. And that she needed to recognize that a loving God was asking for her unconditional abandonment to his providence to sort of wait out events and see where he would take her. So Vincent believed that Louise would find more peace, direction, and joy, uh, importantly, if she focused more on Christ and less on herself. And he became her spiritual director. And I have a quote up on the uh, slide here. This is a quote, I, I'm not sure, I didn't write the date uh, down when she wrote this, but she, uh, it, it's kind of an illustration of over time, um, her profound sense of the love of God that, that developed in her life. And, and uh, Vincent deserves credit for sort of helping her focus on this more uh, spiritually. So, quote, the person who does not love does not know God, for God is charity. The practice of charity is so powerful that it gives us the knowledge of God. Our participation in this divine life inflames us with the fire of holy love. Now, when Vincent became her spiritual director, this was just the beginning of a rather fruitful, lifelong spiritual uh, relationship in which the strengths of both Louise and Vincent kind of rubbed off on one another over time, and sometimes with a bit of human friction. So they did not always see eye to eye uh, at first, partly because Vincent uh, in general was uh, sort of uh, warm in tune with the ways God's love spoke to the heart, uh, not just the mind, and he often liked to wait, not to act quickly uh, on sort of inspirations, but to kind of reflect and reflect some more and trust divine providence. So, so he was a bit more sort of, we might say laid back in certain ways, but that's, that's not a, a good description of Vincent de Paul. He, he wanted um, people to kind of not necessarily trust their initial instincts, but to pray and reflect and, and to kind of be aware of different um, factors uh, sort of moving around. Louise, a bit by contrast, her, her more natural tendencies were very rational. She was very deliberative. She was also experimental. So she liked to try things out quickly, kind of trial and error, um, including different prayer regimens, modes of assisting the poor, and organizing things. So you have a sort of um, uh, sort of the head and the heart uh, dynamic uh, happening a bit. And so sometimes there, there's uh, friction there. Now, the great fruit of this spiritual relationship was the Daughters of Charity. And I'm putting up here on the screen uh, a few scholarly books that I'd recommend for more on this history uh, by Susan Dynan, Barbara Diefendorf, and Mathieu Région uh, de la Lavernier. Uh, Lavernier's book on the right, uh, The Streets as a Cloister, is a brand new translation of an original French book. 
Now, some of these books put the daughters in a larger uh, context of, of uh, history of, of, of Catholic women's activity at the time as well. So I, I, I'm putting those up there for that reason. Um, now, Louise, by the early 1630s, had been working for several years with Vincent and the aristocratic ladies of charity, whom I mentioned earlier, in charitable assistance of the poor. But the ladies' charities suffered from some drop-off in volunteers, especially in um, more urban settings. Uh, the aristocratic women were prohibited by social custom from getting too down and dirty, uh, so to speak, in direct assistance to the poor, the sick and the marginalized. So it was kind of more socially acceptable for aristocratic women to donate time and money, um, but not necessarily to kind of be physically involved in, in dispensing uh, charity directly um, uh, to sort of the underprivileged in society. And so Louise and Vincent realized together that a new organization made up of women from humbler circumstances who were not constrained in this way and women who could devote themselves full time and more radically to charitable works was needed. Now Louise became kind of really fired up by this, this idea and committed to leading such a new organization. And she actually welcomed a group of such women into her home to educate them and train them, uh, her home in Paris. So if you have this aristocratic woman, suddenly she's starting a community of women from different social backgrounds and they, they form this community that are going to devote themselves to the poor. Now the Daughters of Charity who first formed in 1633 grew under both Louise and Vincent's leadership into a new kind of congregation for women. By the end of Louise and Vincent's lives in 1660, the daughters grew from just a handful of women to more than 800 uh, over that period, uh, residing in many different places throughout France. But this was not at all a foregone conclusion uh, that they would grow in this way. And indeed the daughters faced many roadblocks when seeking formal recognition and support from church and state authorities alike. Now, the main problem with them, the reason that there was kind of resistance uh, by church and state authorities, the main problem, if we can call it that, with Louise and the Daughters of Charity was that with their gray dresses and their white turbans, uh, looking therefore more like French peasant women at the time than like nuns, they adopted a form of religious life that was different from the strict cloistered model that the fathers of the Council of Trent had insisted upon for women religious several generations earlier. So part of the reforms of the Council of Trent uh, was to kind of enforce a strict cloister where uh, nuns, religious orders uh, properly, proper of women uh, were devoted to prayer and contemplation inside convent walls and that, that they were not supposed to be sort of active out in the world. Um, but the daughters who wanted to be a, a, an order, um, they spent part of their time in prayer and contemplation, of course, but also a lot of their time out in the world, visiting the sick and helping the poor in various ways. And this made them resemble tertiaries or um, sort of lay members, uh, uh, lay, lay persons attached to uh, religious orders. It also made them resemble lay confraternities. Uh, sort of in the eyes of church officials. So church and state authorities were not inclined to recognize them as a religious order, um, but preferred to see them as a confraternity. Now this was even um, despite the fact that the daughters followed a rule by 1634, kind of regulating their, their prayer regimens, their uh, devotion to chastity and other 
um, other things. Now I have a timeline up here. Um, this gives you a, a sense of the, the date of the formation of the daughters and then the gradual legal and ecclesiastical recognition. And, and you can see by this timeline how long it took. So the daughters gained official approval slowly and in a piecemeal way. So they were approved as a confraternity by the Archbishop of Paris in 1646, 13 years after they had formed. Um, now they were in action doing uh, um, many things in urban and rural settings before they had this formal recognition by the Archbishop of Paris. Then eventually King Louis XIV recognized them as a legal entity in 1657. And the King's authorization was important because it allowed them uh, to sort of uh, potentially establish themselves anywhere uh, in, in his French domains. So, so this was an important um, moment for them. But they were already active in other parts of the kingdom at the, uh, even before this time. Now the Pope would not actually recognize them until 1668. And this was eight years after both Louise and Vincent had died within se several months of each other in 1660. Now in the meantime, Louise was able to experiment with the daughters and transform them into something never really seen before in France. So at first the daughters served the needs of the sick and the poor in their homes, they would, they would make home visits. Um, but Louise's work developed eventually into a larger system of pastoral care. The, the um, daughters took over, for example, the Hôtel Dieu, which is the oldest and largest hospital uh, in Paris. Um, took over, I mean, they, they did a lot of um, uh, uh, care of the sick and the poor in that hospital. Um, their work became well known and the daughters were invited also into the city of Angers in France to take over management of the nursing services of the hospital there too. And this was really just the beginning of the daughters expansion throughout France. And they also opened schools for girls. They ministered to orphans as well as to prisoners, sometimes hardened criminals. And eventually Louise and Vincent sent some daughters to Poland so the daughters did internationalize uh, on a smaller scale, even during Louise's lifetime. Now, Vincent, in the meantime, encouraged the daughters to think of themselves as a religious order, even though they did not call themselves that publicly and they could not be considered one at the time under the laws of the church. So as he famously said of the daughters, quote, the houses of the sick will be their sole monastery, a rented room, their convent cell, the parish church, their chapel, the streets, their cloister, obedience, their enclosure, the fear of God, their convent grill, holy modesty, their veil, unceasing confidence in divine providence, their vows of profession. And that there again, we see Vincent's emphasis on divine providence. That's a very important uh, theme for him throughout his, uh, his life. Now, before I move on to the matter of the two saints uh, canonizations, I just want to offer a few words, um, and also on, on a, I'll speak to why Vincent is, is so much better known today. I want to just say something here about St. Vincent's attitudes toward women, which are actually quite remarkable, I would say, to see in a 17th century churchman. So you can see in some of his writings, some of the um, words that are recorded in uh, conferences with, with the Daughters of Charity and others, that he believed women of different social backgrounds had far more capabilities for education, social influence, service to the poor and others, and also importantly, leadership roles in society than they were generally encouraged to pursue in that time. 
And he urged even women of high status, who you wouldn't necessarily think uh, from our point of view, aristocratic women didn't need encouragement in this, way, in this way, but they did. Aristocratic women of the time were, their lives were constrained in certain ways. And Vincent encouraged them to take their own talents and capacity for a range of virtues, including courage, more seriously than the dominant culture around them did. So courage in the early 17th century was, was not, not necessarily seen as a virtue that women could uh, exert. And Vincent very much rejected that idea. I thought women were capable of courage and sort of public witness of various kinds. And he shocked various contemporaries with his, his confidence in Louise's and other women's pursuit of their prison ministry, for example, among hardened criminals. And at times in his counsel to Louise and others, um, he cited various examples of heroic female servants of God, including the biblical Judith, who beheaded Holofernes, the French Saint Genevieve, who helped save Paris from an invasion uh, centuries uh, before, and the not yet canonized Joan of Arc, the maid of Orléans. And he also considered Mariac and the Daughters of Charity to be something like the deaconesses of the early church. Now the fruit of Vincent and Louise's partnership is visible today almost four centuries after they began to collaborate. There are some 15,000 Daughters of Charity laboring today in more than 90 countries. Before Vatican II, these numbers uh, were even more impressive in many ways. I don't know the exact numbers. Um, indeed, by the early 20th century, the Daughters of Charity were truly one of the most successful women's congregations, not just in France, but all over Europe and throughout the world. Now, all of that said, uh, as, as we know, that their foundress, St. Louise, is known to far fewer people today, including numerous Catholics, than St. Vincent is. Now, there are a number of reasons for this. And up on this slide and the next one I'll show you, I, I've outlined a few. Um, for one thing, the Daughters of Charity were only one of DePaul's major projects. I told you about his work with the Lazarists, the Ladies of Charity. I mentioned his work with the Compagnie de Saint-Sacrement and the French state. Um, and the Lazarists also, uh, they internationalized quickly uh, in Europe and into Africa, while the daughters, despite their early work in Poland, only truly internationalized and became a missionary order in the 19th century. Relatedly then, DePaul, because of his reach and the Lazarus reach and the reach of um, other, other people he was connected to um, in various uh, parts of French religious and public life, he was already more widely known when he died than Louise. And so his cause for sainthood proceeded uh, more quickly. And in part, um, the, the Duchess that we own, Richelieu's niece, who I mentioned earlier, um, she was partly responsible for encouraging devotion to St. Vincent uh, before he was a saint. Now, additionally, in the early 19th century, a man who's now a blessed of the church, uh, Frédéric Ozenam, uh, a prominent French layman, founded the Society of St. Vincent de Paul in 1844 a voluntary organization for sanctifying lay members through personal service to the poor, which spread devotion far and wide, uh, devotion to Vincent far and wide, but not by design, far less so to Louise. She was not yet canonized. So it, it was, um, they were not spreading devotion to her in, in the same way. Also for a range of reasons that are too complex for me to get into here, 
various disparities, distortions, and silences in historical writing about both figures for a long time put Marillac in too subordinate a role than sort of the facts would justify. Now finally, but also something um, that in turn contributed in various ways to some of the things I've just explained to you, Vincent was beatified and canonized rather quickly in 1729 and 1737 respectively. Louise, by contrast, was not beatified or canonized until the early 20th century in 1920 and 1934, respectively. Now, I want to just say a few things about the, the, the saints' two different paths to canonization. And I thought I would highlight a few uh, works in the Bollandist Society's collections that help illustrate this story. I do want to qualify, though, just full disclosure, the images I'm using are not photographs of the actual volumes in the Bollandist collection. Uh, but are taken from uh, copies of the same editions uh, held in some other uh, libraries that I kind of stole off the internet. Um, so up on the left side uh, of the screen, so every, every book I'm showing you here, the Bollandists own a copy of this, uh, but, but the images are not uh, from their collection. Um, now up on the left is a book authored by Louis Abeli, a French bishop who had known Vincent de Paul personally. And Abeli, encouraged by some of de Paul's uh, lay patrons, produced and published within only four years of Vincent's death, the first biography of Vincent. Uh, in French, uh, it's titled La vie de venerable servitude de Dieu, Vincent de Paul. Uh, and it, it, it stresses that he's venerable, which means already a popular devotion was growing to him. And it calls him the institutor and uh, for superior of the congregation of the mission. Now, another key thing, um, this book was published by Florentin Lambert, who was a very established Parisian uh, publisher at the time. So just by virtue of sort of the, uh, the publisher who printed this book, uh, the people who read it quickly, this helped spread the word rather quickly about de Paul, only four years after his death, and encouraged more devotion to him. Now his cause was brought to Rome relatively quickly and it was approved uh, in time. So by 1729, he was beatified. And that same year, another publication, which, which the Bollandists also own a copy of, came out in French, underscoring de Paul's new status. We see here in French, abrégé de la vie des vertus du bienheureux Vincent de Paul, so blessed Vincent de Paul. Uh, and importantly, it says he's Instituteur de la Congregation de la Mission et des Fils de, Ch de la Charité. So he's the founder of the Daughters of Charity. It doesn't say co-founder, um, it says founder. So Louise's role uh, was being sort of overshadowed partly now by the kinds of books people had available to read on the Daughters as well as on Vincent's life. Now a biography was also written uh, on Louise by a priest who had known her. Uh, Nicolas Gobillon authored and saw published a biography in 1676, but that book referred to her in its title not as venerable, but simply as Mademoiselle Le Gras. So it didn't even use her name, Louise de Marillac. Uh, Mademoiselle Le Gras was the name that Vincent uh, sort of politely referred to her his whole life. Um, now that book was published by a far less established Parisian printing house. Um, that of André Pralard, who was just coming up as a printer at the time. So not many as many copies survive today. But interestingly, uh, this biography by um, a man named Gobillon 
was republished almost 100 years later. And the book on the left here that the Bolinists own a copy of uh, is one of these sort of republic, republished uh, volumes of this book. And it was republished in 1769. And it was given a new title than the one that Gobillon originally used. And the title uh, in French is La Vie de la Venerable Louise de Marillac. So it uses her name, it calls her venerable in recognition that a cult had developed, uh, a, a, a veneration was happening, even though she's not canonized. And interestingly, it calls her the first superior of the uh, Daughters of Charity. And the foundress, fondatrice, uh, the word is there. So there's, there's growing recognition here. Now this book was promoting the opening of a cause for Louise. And interestingly, in 1780, another book appeared on DePaul that referred to Louise along with him in its title as part of the same effort. On sorts l'esprit de Saint-Vincent de Paul, avec le portrait de l'est of the saint and celui de Madame Legras, fondatrice and première supérieure de Sœur de la Charité. So she's credited with being the foundress of the daughters. Unfortunately, efforts to open Louise's cause got sidetracked during the tumultuous years of the French Revolution. Um, so the daughters were still primarily in France in 1789, and when the revolutionaries suppressed the daughters, along with so many other orders and congregations, the daughters were forced to go into hiding. So the chapel of their mother house was destroyed, and the women also had to dig up and hide Louise's casket in order to protect her remains from possible desecration. Now in the 19th century, the daughters were revived in France, and they also became a missionary order so sisters began heading off to many places in Africa, East Asia, Latin America, also forming communities in the young United States. So eventually the legacy of Louise is much uh, more fully appreciated by the end of the 19th century when her cause is opened in Rome. Now, after some years of investigations on the matter, resulted, uh, this resulted in her beatification in 1920, more books were written about her, of course. Um, and so I, I'm just mentioning one other uh, that I don't have a copy of the, the cover, but that the Bollandists own, the, the book from 1920, um, 1921, just after her beatification, Portal's uh, Le Fils de la Charité. Um, now note in that title, Vincent and Louise are presented together as essentially the co-founders or mother and father, we might say, of the daughters, who by that point, um, um, were truly one of the most successful women's congregations in church history. Now I'm getting to the end time here. I just want to um, mention uh, quickly that Louise was finally canonized in 1934, enabling Catholics to honor her and Vincent together as saints for the poor, the sick, the marginalized, and those who tend to them. And if you'll allow me, um, I just want to end here just with a story that I had the great privilege of getting to visit both saints' tombs in Paris several years ago in 2016. But also I'll, I'll confess as a rather fitting illustration of everything I just talked about, about Louise being far less well-known than Vincent. I went out of my way to visit St. Vincent about whom I knew a lot already at the time, but I only stumbled accidentally on St. Louise while not looking for her, while visiting the shrine uh, uh, where there's another saint buried. So as you can see here, Vincent is fitted out with a remarkable resting place, very high above the altar of a chapel named for him in Paris, on the Rue de Sèvres in Paris. And I stopped to visit his tomb a couple of times in 2016, 
when I was doing research for the book that I'm now writing. Louise's remains, uh, they're not that far away in Paris. They're on the Rue de Bac. Um, and they're in a chapel that is not dedicated to her by name, but rather to Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal. And Louise shares the space as a venerated saint along with Catherine Laboret, the 19th century visionary, who was a daughter of Charity, um, who is the more famous of the two women whom pilgrims go to visit there. So Louise's um, tomb is on the left of the image that I'm showing you, and, and Catherine is on the right, a bit closer to the altar. So I was, I was in the shrine with a friend and I was sort of walking across the front and I suddenly realized Louise de Marillac was there and I, I felt rather foolish that I didn't know she was there. And I had, I had a, a rather um, described a, power, a powerful experience. I, I knelt and prayed near her tomb and I, I felt sort of consolation about the book I was writing, but I also felt sort of some sort of message that I'd better say more about the Daughters of Charity than I was planning on saying uh, while writing this book. So that's all I want to say. Um, so this, this talk today in some ways is a small belated fruit of that experience that I had in Paris. Um, and I hope it's been engaging as well as informative. And now I look forward to answering your questions with the caveat that I, I am not the scholarly specialist by any means on either of these things. So um, I'll do my best to answer uh, your questions, but I, I may not know uh, some of the things that some of you are, are interested in asking, okay? Well, thank you very much, Bronwyn. Um, and uh, I'd invite you to unshare your screen sure. right now so that we'll okay. both be here together for uh, our audience. Okay. Um, and just a reminder to our audience, uh, you can pose questions uh, that I'll deliver to Bronwyn um, through the Q&A chat feature just at the bottom of your screen. Feel free to click there. Um, but just, you, you let this off with your, your book right there and your experience of your book. Could you perhaps just sort of unpack a little more um, the, the research that you're doing right now and how these two saints fit within the sort of broader historical period that you're investigating? Sure, uh, so I'm, I, my first book was on the Jesuits of New France. I wrote about a famous French mission in Canada. And while I was working on that, I stumbled across uh, one of the major donors to the, some of the projects in that mission was the niece of Cardinal Richelieu, Marie de Vigneron, uh, the Duchesse d'Aguillon. And she started to interest me sort of on the side. And I realized uh, rather quickly that um, the more I looked into her, the more she became this sort of rabbit hole a subject distracting me from my book because she seemed to have a hand in almost every major development in French Catholicism in the mid 17th century. She was involved with the Carmelites. She was involved with almost every French overseas mission not simply as a donor, but as someone who kind of conceptualized some of these missions and urged people like Vincent de Paul to get more involved in overseas. She also was uh, one of the first salon hostesses in Paris. Um, and she was, she was Richelieu's heiress. Richelieu was one of the wealthiest men in, in Europe. And he had a nephew, he had a, other male relatives. He trusted her with kind of carrying on his legacy more than some of the male relatives. So she's this kind of fascinating female figure in the history of Catholicism and, and French society at the time. And so I decided to work on her biography um, and I, I can go on and on about her. Um, so I'll, I'll not do that here. Um, but she was very close to Vincent de Paul. She's one of his, probably his major patroness over time. Uh, she, they worked very closely together on a range of projects. She founded, uh, she helped found some of the, the Lazarists um, 
uh, houses. Um, she donated to seminaries, some of their missions, including in North Africa. Um, and so the two had a very interesting working relationship, uh, similar to his working relationship uh, with Louise, but on the, on the side of um, the Duchess being a laywoman that he worked closely with. So mm. that was kind of my first, I, I started, I learned about DePaul through this laywoman. Laywoman. So I, I learned about him, not with him as center stage, but with this other person center stage. And, and so Louise was also very known to her uh, through the Ladies of Charity, the daughters, um, but she did not seem to have as much uh, interaction with her over time, at least not that's recorded. They didn't write as many mm-hmm. letters and all that. Um, so it's harder to track, but I, I'm, I know they work together. It's just not, not as documented. Right. Um, and, and that ties in with a question that comes from uh, one of our um, audience members. Um, Rudolf Gartner um, states, early in your excellent lecture, you mentioned that Vincent de Paul, soon after he began his congregation of the mission, was able to acquire several buildings and areas for land for the congregation. How was he um, and the congregation able to manage such acquisitions so rapidly? Was it in fact through this patronage? And Maybe you can unpack a little more for us 21st audience uh, members sort of what what a patronage um, by someone like the Duchess or Cardinal Richelieu might look like. Sure, the the real technical uh, discussion of this, Alison Forrestal's book is really great on this. She, she shows, uh, she maps out uh, his relationship with various patrons. So sometimes you would have someone like the Duchess or Richelieu or um, other aristocrats, or including bishops who are actually important patrons of him. They would sometimes donate a building. Um, uh, they would sometimes give uh, annual, uh, they would call them a rents or income, an annual income to help uh, fund the, the building um, and to help fund the missions to the poor or the school they're opening or the seminary. Um, uh, there was also, the state was also important patron. So the, the Duchess and Richelieu helped work out a sort of a contributions of public funds from the king to various um, Lazarus uh, houses, seminaries, et cetera, um, and missions. And so there's really a close working relationship with patrons in terms of the the physical infrastructure develops. And it develops rather amazingly for the Lazarus. You can see it in their history. It it becomes a kind of very national organization in a sense in certain areas of France, um, partly because you have bishops willing to host them in different places or noble patrons, uh, and, and this, this imprimatur of the crown uh, certainly helps. Um, and the same thing happened with the daughters on a, a, a more modest scale, certainly initially, um, uh, where you have um, uh, patrons kind of uh, promising uh, funds and various, uh, they would donate supplies to them. So um, they would have donation drives and things like that. So, so yeah, it's it's a it's a complicated story, and I highly recommend it if anyone wants to really dig into a scholarly discussion, uh, Forrestal's biography. So, could you unpack a little more the sort of the political side of Saint Vincent de Paul? I mean, I honestly, I'm not a historian, so my my awareness of Cardinal Richelieu is obviously from Dumas and and the Three Musketeers, right? But it's hard to imagine. Um, someone uh, who we consider a saint today, uh, sort of frequenting the halls of power like that. And it seems like it, it might have sort of played out with his uh, acquiring of patronage from other people. Could you unpack a little bit the yeah, political dimension of both saints? I'll, 
I'll try to, yeah, it's easier to see with Vincent. I mean, women were not in general permitted to be that political. So, so there's not a, I mean, you have exceptional figures like the Duchess of Aguilar. Um, she has a certain status um, as a noble, but um, so Vincent, kind of the traditional image of him that I had just from holy cards and things was that he was this peasant priest helping the poor children, just kind of this smiling, just purely spiritual man that had no worldly interests at all. Um, and that's a, certainly a cartoon, but he was a very, he, he was very well educated. He was, he over time became a bit more polished than your average uh, peasant. And he, he was charismatic. He was able through, partly through spiritual directors who were very well placed to kind of encounter uh, rather quickly when he was quite young, some major figures connected uh, at the French court. And so uh, Richelieu, it's believed partly through his niece's recommendation, um, kind of put uh, DePaul uh, on Richelieu's radar. And Richelieu was very concerned um, uh, the, the, his ancestral area of Richelieu in France, uh, the domains of Richelieu, uh, uh, it was in a region where there was a lot of inroads, there were a lot of inroads made by Protestants and there was rural poverty and, and various problems. And so Richelieu himself wanted to establish the congregation of the mission in his uh, home area of France. And so he became a patron um, of Vincent, but he also, Vincent was, um, he had ideas for how to reform the clergy and the, the congregation of the mission became this important uh, way of kind of morally reforming the clergy and spiritually reforming them at a time when a lot of French churchmen were still resisting the reforms of Trent. So, so Richelieu kind of pragmatically saw the Vincent as someone who could really help him kind of with this project of reforming the clergy. So the, the Machiavellian Richelieu who's having prisoners executed and all that also had a lot of sort of holy designs for the church and Vincent <laughs> was sort of caught up in this. Now Vincent was always far less political by nature. He sometimes resented the um, sort of political activities that his his uh, priests had to get involved in sometimes. And you see him sometimes talking about this in his letters, um, but he was pragmatic and he he sort of was very capable uh, sort of networking with these kinds of people in a way you don't expect the peasant priests to be, so. Um, so on this point about um, a sort of vision for um, the, the priests, uh, we have a question that, that comes from Jared um, McCarran who says, might you repeat what you said about St. Vincent de Paul's vision for seminaries and possibly expand on it? And um, Professor McCarran teaches at Immaculate Conception Seminary in New Jersey. So he has a, a practical interest in this. Hello, Father um, I, um So what I, what I know, I know mainly through Forrestal's uh, work and, and there's an emphasis there. Uh, so Vincent, seminary training, uh, from what I understand, um, was, was often in a, almost like a cloistered, uh, seminaries are fairly new still. We, people don't always realize this. The Council of Trent instituted seminaries more uniformly. Um, so bishops were responsible for seminaries and it was part of the reform of the, the church. And they were, they were sort of cloistered environments in the sense of um, studying theology and, and um, studying um, various aspects of uh, becoming a clergyman uh, where you're not necessarily engaging with ordinary lay people in the streets are, or, or kind of um, 
learning to be a priest in a practical way before your ordination is by, by dealing with people uh, in spiritual conversations. Vincent believed there should be a bit, bit more kind of um, in a controlled way. He didn't want sort of a, a loose affiliations of seminarians with people out in the world, but he wanted a sort of practical dimension to seminary formation. Um, and also to seminarians as well as lay brothers, not just priests, had some experience in kind of a more mission uh, uh, style activity. I do believe, I could be remembering this wrong, he partly drew inspiration from the Jesuits who were you know, exper more experimental with their long period of formation mm -hmm. uh, for clergy, sort of different. Um, so formation is much shorter than in, in, in the Lazarus seminaries. Um, and they're not in order. So uh, some of the men who joined the order had gone to seminary elsewhere. So, so not all Lazarus are trained in Lazarus seminary. So um, I can't really speak beyond that in terms of uh, expertise, but, but they would learn to preach partly by learning to engage with real people. <laughs> um, right. So. And of course the Lazarus are more popularly known for many of us here, at least in Chicago, is the Vincentians. Yes, and I should have said that. I should have said that. Um, I, read, I read too many French sources, so I, I tend to forget sometimes. I lose perspective on the um, ordinary way of speaking about things. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> the Vincentians, yeah. Um, I was struck in your presentation by this emphasis on experimentation, um, particularly by Louise de Marillac. Could you, could you speak? Um, say a little more um, just about that, both in terms of experimentation and prayer, and also in terms of her, her work in charity, and, and maybe a, whether there's a takeaway for us. Um, sure, I'm not sure how, how deep I can get into it. I mean, she, um, the rule that the daughters uh, had in place by, I believe it was 1634, is based partly on just experimenting with different ways, like, like how, when hours of prayer should be done, when, uh, what part of the day more active service to the poor should be done. And Louise wanted, she initially had a more sort of regimented model in mind. Mm -hmm. um, and over time, it, it became clear that if, if the daughters are going to do this work well, being sort of semi-contemplative and semi-very active, um, they needed to allow more time for spontaneity uh, in their schedules in, in order to be, be able to do these things well. Um, I can't tell you about that. I mean, there, the evolution of the rule and various things over time is something I, I can't speak expertly about, but um, she liked to try things quickly. Vincent would sometimes wait. Uh, some things he was involved in, um, he would sometimes take two or three years to make a big decision about certain things. Um, and, and sometimes this, this sense of um, timing, that, that seems to be an area, is my impression, that they didn't always see eye to eye initially, that, that he wanted to sort of wait out, see where events would take the daughters or the incentions and, um, and then develop practical rules uh, based on that. So um, I, was there a second part of the question? I, I forget if there was. Um, well, I guess I had also asked not just about in prayer, but also in terms of her, their charity work and then whether there's a takeaway um, for us today. Um, well, I think, um, so partly, one, one point that seems to be uh, a, a blessing in disguise was how long it took for church and state authorities to um, approve of the daughters. Mm -hmm. This allowed them, uh, and scholars have said this that I've read, it, it gave them a chance to really experiment with school projects, hospital projects, uh, helping the poor in their homes, um, 
figuring out what's the best way for the daughters to work with the ladies of charity or the priests um, without kind of formal structures always guiding uh, what they were doing. So in, in a strange way, by being under the radar, it, it enabled them to kind of ex uh, experiment with their administrative structure, the kinds of activities they engaged in, and through trial and error to kind of uh, learn how to better help the poor and the sick and children in ways that were um, genuinely effective and would actually help uh, sort of keep people involved in the projects long term. So often charitable projects would start with a lot of energy and, and they would die off quickly as people got sort of tired of that. So, so the, the structure helped, uh, helped ma um, maintain these charities over the long term. In terms of what, what that can teach us today. Um, <laughs> I, guess I know you're a historian and not a, you know, a, a prophet for us, but still. <laughs> yeah, maybe, I mean, a good lesson would seem to be um, often great ideas, the way we think about them, um, initially, we can, we can get very wedded to our initial vision of what we're doing. And if events kind of fail us, or that it doesn't seem to sort of, what we originally had in mind doesn't seem what, uh, what we're actually engaged in two or three years down the road, um, that that's not necessarily a problem. It, it's just maybe trust divine providence the way Vincent mm. would encourage. And uh, don't be too wedded to the original idea if what you're doing is actually if you sort of loosen up that, that sort of fixation on the idea and let sort of practice guide you a bit um, and uh, just stick to it and, and kind of, I, I think that's hard for academics to, to, to do as well because we, we love ideas and putting things into practice, we often feel disillusioned. And um, Vincent and Louise, I think both teach us to not let ourselves get, get disillusioned when our ideas <laughs> don't seem to bear immediate fruit because they may be bearing wonderful fruit that we're so wedded to the idea we're not looking for that, the fruit that's actually being born. So that makes right. sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I yeah. think that's, uh, <laughs> that's quite on par for the course for us as academics. Um, now, uh, getting back to the pair of them, could you speak um, to or characterize, and this may fall outside of the scope of the research that you've done, but the numerous letters um, between the two in their partnership in ministry? There are many letters, uh, unfortunately, Vincent's letters survive many more. Uh, mm. letters, there are far fewer available. Um, and this, I'm not sure why that is exactly. Some of the people to whom Vincent sent letters, including Louise, uh, preserved these letters. There was more of an effort to preserve them. I, so they, they both were uh, avid letter writers. They would sometimes write every day, several letters a day occasionally, even when they're both in Paris. So they kept each other informed on a lot of things. So that one of my favorites that I've come across in um, working on the biography of the Duchess, uh, Vincent would write to her to complain that I was working on this thing that we were supposed to do that day that I told you all about in my last letter, but the Duchess made me go to her house again. And I had to comfort her friend who just lost a son in the war so he's almost like complaining that he had to go be a priest to this woman, uh, to Louise, but then he throws in, but I was actually kind of blown away by this woman's uh, presence of mind, how she was spiritually handling the death of her son. And so he's reporting to her both his annoyance and his awe at this just very mm -hmm. interesting experience in the home of the Duchess. And so his letters sometimes seem to be like a combination of just venting about some things, but also giving direction and reporting. And unfortunately, we often do not have the back and forth, but you, you can sometimes get a sense of what Louise was talking about based on what he will refer to. Um, 
Now, I haven't read that many of their letters. I'm, I'm much more familiar with some of Vincent's letters, uh, but there right. are plenty of letters uh, from Louise that do survive giving advice to the daughters. And, uh, yeah. and they're, they're spiritually quite uh, rich and they haven't been studied as well as Vincent. So scholars are still studying her uh, more than uh, she used to be in the past now. So, Could you speak, uh, going from you know your, your first encounter with um, Vincent at the tomb and, and sort of sometimes our experience of Catholics is having uh, glossed over pictures of the saints to now you've you've had the chance to be sort of intimate with his thoughts through his letters. Um, how has your sort of picture of DePaul um, or Louise um, de Mariac changed? That's a good question. I was Vincent. I, um, I, I confess I had this early on this Kind of peasant priest like smiling i i would see statues of him holding an infant or helping poor children and i've just never been the florence nightingale type like i i, I confess i'm not someone who i i always wish i could be more devoted to social charity and things like that that's just mm -hmm. not my nature as much i shouldn't broadcast that all in the united states um but i i um i was never quite drawn to that because i always felt that it was a sort of high above me in a sanctity from the beginning. And, and um, I sort of came through the back door. Now I know how Vincent, uh, these charities were sort of tied in with all these dramatic political events, things happening in France. He's engaged in kind of um, negotiations with some of the most uh, prominent people in French society. And, he, and he's, he, very, he was very committed to his vision and Louise's vision for the daughters. Uh, and for the Lazarists. And sometimes the patrons would put pressure on them. They wanted to use the daughters or the Lazarus for reasons that were not necessarily in keeping with the, um, with the mission. And, and uh, both of them had a kind of stick to it in this about sort of adapting when they could, not wanting to alienate uh, um, their patrons and, and sort of appreciating the gifts that their patrons had, including spiritual leadership sometimes in the laity. They seem to recognize that, um, but also kind of uh, sticking to their own course that they were on, sort of not confusing um, power with, with something that should always drive everything they're doing. So, so they both were, uh, I've just learned to be, I've become more impressed just with, partly with their, their spiritual lives, their distinct spiritual commitments and the way this seemed to flow into their practical work. Um, they're very human, they're very interesting people. And I feel like I'm barely scratching the surface now of two very interesting personalities. Right. Uh, that the holy cards, as beautiful as some of the old ones are, uh, didn't in initially make me want to get to know. So. Yeah. Um, we have a question from an audience member, um, Alice Pope, uh, regarding the origins of Vincent de Paul's care for the poor. So was Vincent de Paul concerned about the poor and disadvantaged prior to his capture and enslavement or after escape and return to France? So that, um, so uh, thanks, Alice. Um, referring to, there's a story that Vincent himself told that he was captured by Barbary pirates. Right. And there's sort of two lost years in Vincent's history. Uh, Scholars who've studied this, um, this story, he communicated the story before he had really had some of his um, more dramatic conversions. There's some doubt as to the veracity of that story. Mm. Um, and so I, um, there's no definitive way of knowing whether it happened or didn't, um, but, but there is some question as to 
whether he was telling the truth about that and why, what was he um, covering over in those two years. Alison Forrestal deals with this very delicately because she's very aware of the hagiography um, and she, she has a lot of respect for the, the hagiographical tradition, but she's also looking at the sources. Um, so I, I'm not sure um, what the moment was where he becomes concerned about the poor, but it, it's, my understanding is, I'm forgive me if, my, if someone out there knows better than me, that it is after this period, um, uh, after he's influenced by Pierre Barul and some others uh, in his priesthood, and he starts to become aware of um, certain problems that the countryside is facing. And he, he's patronized by the Gandhis, uh, this aristocratic couple. He's actually assigned to this rural area where he doesn't necessarily wanna be. He kind of wants to be in Paris where the movers and shakers are. And so he's partly kind of, events kind of encourage him to uh, look at the poor in a different way. Um, so I think his trust in divine providence is very much coming out of his own experience of mm. God taught him through events and taught him to become what he was supposed to be sometimes uh, when he was initially resistant of it or he had different ideas in mind uh, for what he wanted to do. So um, hopefully that's uh, half of an answer. I can't give a precise timing about that. Um, so, and back to Mariak, um, uh, Mark um, Potosnak um, says, great talk. I think we all agree with that. Um, and you mentioned uh, Mariak's education. Um, did she also work to have the daughters educated? Yes, she did. And um, there, there's good uh, information about that. I don't have it at my fingertips, but um, many of the, the girls coming into uh, the daughters were from quite humble backgrounds, sort of unlettered peasant backgrounds, um, sort of working class backgrounds, we might describe them as. Um, and girls in general were not educated. Uh, mm. I did not sort of learn to read uh, unless they're aristocratic. She was um, very much concerned that the daughters be educated, partly as a way of um, helping steal them, uh, by enabling them to read spiritual literature, to enable mm -hmm. them to kind of develop uh, a vibrant interior existence and to put their own lives, their work in perspective. So it, was, it had a practical dimension to it. And um, it also helped give them a bit more polish, especially in urban settings. The, the daughters, um, some of these are young women who get tempted right away in these strange settings. They, they move to Paris, devoted to the poor, but then suddenly they see Paris for the first time and, and all its uh, wonders. And so by making them go to school for a time and develop a certain uh, attitude, it, it sort of helped protect them from uh, sort of certain influences. It also gave them a certain polish in dealing with a uh, higher level they, they might be savvier in terms of assessing people they might run into of a higher social background. So, um, but again, that's, that's just my impression of what's going on. I, I can't tell you there, there, there's a lot, there are records about what the girls were studying, uh, young women were studying, but I, I can't tell you exactly what their, the educational uh, program was, but that changed over time too, of course, mm. as, the, uh, as she experimented with that. Mm. Uh, and then I guess one final question um, uh, from Sigurd Wansil, and, and I'm sure a question a lot of um, people may have. Um, uh, first, how did you gain access to the letters of St. Vincent de Paul and Louise de Mariac? And then I guess a question I'll ask on behalf of our viewers, um, where do you recommend that they go to sort of uh, have a first exploration of their writings or their lives? 
Sure. Well, this is a, one of these true confessions of a scholar. So I thought I had to go to Paris at one point to get these letters. Uh, one of my trips to Paris, I went to the, the Congregation of the Missions archives and I was looking at records of letters that then told me a lot of these are at the National Archives because uh, most of the pre-revolutionary um, materials were taken by the French state at one point. Um, and then I realized some of the materials I was looking at in archives and libraries in Paris were available like as PDFs and translated into English in many cases uh, up on uh, some internet sites. And I think I have all these people I have a bibliography that I sent to you. And I just want to mention two resources on there. Uh, sorry. So there's a translation of, there's a French scholar, Pierre Coste, C-O-S-T-E, and there are many volumes of Vincent's letters um, and other writings called uh, Correspondence Conferences Documents. Um, and DePaul's library has all of these available. Uh, at, um, um, it's it's uh, via, via library.depaul.edu slash cost uh, and then en. I think maybe you can share it at some point. It's in the primary sources section of what I sent to you. Um, there's also um, a collected volume. It's uh, a, a sort of short sampling of the writings. Uh, Ryan and Reibold, the, the Classics of Western Spirituality volume of, of Louise and Vincent, they have a volume together nicely. So the saints are together. Uh, some of their letters are in there. Um, Louise de Marac's writings, her spiritual writings are also available through DePaul, um, their library. So, um, and then the, the Vincentians also, there's a fanvin, I think, .org uh, website that has a lot of materials as well. So, so a lot of these are very easily accessible. They're in English um, translation. Um, but I, I found some other materials in archives that I was very, I, I'm touching a piece of paper with Vincent de Paul's signature, Louise de Marac's signature, and the Duchess of Aguillon on the same piece of paper. It was one of the most exciting days of my life, actually. So it was like a, I don't know what kind of relic that would be considered, but it was like, um, you're not supposed to touch these documents, but in the National Archives, I like made sure no one was looking and I, and I just like touched the signature. So sorry, uh, National Archives <laughs> of, of France. So um, anyway. Well, thank you. And to our audience members, um, don't worry, we will include in our follow-up email tomorrow, um, 24 hours after the event, um, some of that bibliographic information um, from throughout the presentation. Um, uh, Professor Bronwyn, once more, thank you um, uh, for, for this fantastic presentation. Um, and, uh, and thank you all for joining us. Um, we're grateful to the Bolandis Society for helping to ensure this event's success and, and the success of the whole series. Um, and I'd invite you to support us. Um, if you are enjoying this um, event, uh, please recommend it to your friends um, or your parishes. Um, follow us on social media and get word out there. Um, particularly during a time of pandemic, word of mouth is actually, or word by email, um, is uh, one of the most effective ways for us to, um, to bring in new constituents um, and new audience members. Um, finally, I, I invite you to financially support us um, and help us to continue to make this work available for free. Um, you can donate today at www.lumenchristi.org donate. A gift of any kind goes a long way. Um, you can also so support the Bolandis Society and their important work um, with the link that's being posted in the chat. Um, 
once more, Professor McShay, thank you very much. Uh, and we look forward to bringing you back to uh, the Lumen Christi Institute in the future. Okay, thank you. Thank you, everybody.